0: Hello, this is Victor Lopez, and I am going to read an excerpt, uh, actually a little bit more than half, of my uh, newest published short story, Amor Vincent Omnia, which for those of you who don't dabble in Latin, uh, or who are not fans of Chaucer for that matter, uh, means uh, love conquers all. Hope you enjoy it. Last night I found the love of my life. She was drowning in a shallow pool of muddy water not far from my door. I rescued her, gently carried her home, revived her, and tenderly washed her body clean as she trembled beneath my gentlest touch. Her tears soon dried, and she found herself protected, safe, dry, warm, and lovingly placed on a comfy couch. I stared at her for hours as she slept, captivated by her beauty and grace, even in sleep. I could not take my eyes away from her. She had not spoken a word to me, but that did not matter. I could feel a connection between us, at a level beyond that of mere words. It is as though my whole life I had been nothing more than a winding path leading to her side. I knew instinctively that we would never be apart. When she awoke, I stared at her eyes, which seemed to hold flecks of gold, silver, and copper unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Giving her an exotic, otherworldly appearance. She stared at me for the longest time, wide-eyed and unblinking. I smiled at her, trying to reassure her that all would be well. In time I asked her whether she wanted me to take her anywhere in particular, but she seemed to draw back, averting her eyes, communicating without words that she did not have a home. I sensed what I took to be her fear that I might take her back to the sidewalk where I had found her. Her reaction simply broke my heart. I tried to reassure her that she would have a home with me for as long as she wanted it. She seemed relieved, and I thought I could see her gently shudder, as one often does after a good cry. I placed her close to me, and she seemed happy and content. We eventually both fell asleep together on my couch, with my cradling her gently in my arms. I had not known such peaceful, restful sleep in decades. Our next months we became inseparable. She sat next to me as I wrote, my muse and silent critic. I could look at her and know when she thought my words needed revision, or when I was writing myself into a corner, as I sometimes do. At such times, she giggled like the tinkling of tiny bells, the most wonderful sound I'd ever heard. She listened with endless patience and empathy as I shared my fears, hopes, and dreams, and eventually entrusted me with her own. My wife was away, as she often is during this time of year, and I opted not to tell her about my new love. There was no point in doing so, as I knew her reaction would be derisive, or worse, perhaps one of relief. Moreover, the relationship with my new soulmate was strictly platonic, and would remain so. We could never consummate our love, as that was impossible for us both, under our current circumstances. We never discussed that. It was simply a given. Nevertheless, we grew very close, as close as any two beings could ever be, on caring that sex would never be a part of our relationship. This was not a real problem for me. As forced celibacy is something that the majority of men married for decades know only too well, if not happily. It would be, it would be a small sacrifice, and one I was more than willing to make for spiritual closeness I had never imagined possible. Unlike my wife, who screams at me regularly whenever we're together or speak over the phone, my true love never once so much as gave me a dour look. I had grown accustomed to finding peace by spending most of my time in a room other than that which my wife occupied at any given time, preferably one a different floor and a different wing of the house. With my new love, however, the exact opposite was true. She seemed happy only when near me, and I knew peace only when she was by my side. We seemed to have formed an almost symbiotic relationship, drawing strength from a closeness that had nothing to do with possessiveness or jealousy, but grew out of a pure, powerful love that seemed to hold us both captured in its orbit. I could gently caress her for hours, without her complaining that I was messing up her makeup or her hair, or smacking my hand away telling me to stop making a pest of myself. She never pulled away if I wanted to hold her during an entire movie, and she never once complained that I cooked too much food or tried to sabotage her diet by bringing home loads of the unhealthy, high-fat, and sugary snacks I love. Her willpower was incredible. I could have plunked her in a bathtub full of the most delectable ice cream and she'd just lie there smiling impishly or sticking out her tongue at me without taking so much as a single bite or complaining about the cold. But she thoroughly enjoyed seeing me eat and, unlike my wife, never complained that I chewed my food too noisily that I ate too fast, or that I did not use a plate and drop too many crumbs if I decided to eat a cookie while watching television. Like my wife, who is also a good cook but sees cooking as a chore, she preferred to let me do the cooking, but unlike my wife, she thoroughly enjoyed watching me cook my favorite dishes or inventing something completely new without a recipe flying by the seat of my pants, as is my preferred method of gastronomic experimentation. I could feel her trying so hard not to laugh at some of the monumental failures that these experiments, but much more often saw her beaming with pride at the more frequent successes, though she herself seemed to live on nothing but love and air. She never complained about my wanting to watch a football game, or when I railed against the referee's bad call, or newscasters inventing rather than reporting the news, for that matter. She never hoarded the remote, unlike my wife, who always shoots a feral look in my direction and growls softly if I so much as look at the remote that is always firmly clutched in her hands whenever we watch television together. Nor did she ever interrupt the shows I love at the worst possible moment by reading to me whatever caught her attention on her tablet at that moment, and then complaining endlessly if I did not pay close attention, quizzes would often follow, to whatever the duchess of who-knows-where had said or done, or what new outrageous lunacy was being spouted by the latest of the 437 candidates for the Democrat Party nomination for president. I'd always preferred a strong, independent, highly intelligent woman. Most men have a favorite part of the female anatomy that they fixate on. Breasts, thighs, legs, bottoms. Some will even occasionally claim eyes, noses, or lips, though I suspect they're lying. I like curves and reproductive organs just as much as the next guy for celibacy notwithstanding. Uh, And yes, eyes, lips, noses, earlobes, legs, feet, arms, hands, fingers, and toes, too, for that matter. But by far my favorite and unquestionably the sexiest female organ of all is the brain. Men are nothing if not easy to read and understand and not just when it comes to our favorite body parts or recreational activities. We are as easy to manipulate as a cat in a dark room by someone wielding a laser pointer. But women are a species altogether different. The average man can no more understand the working of a woman's mind than he can explain the finer points of quantum mechanics quantum entanglement, or the physics that underlines spooky action at a distance. In fairness, neither could Einstein, who was one of the brightest among us. A smart woman can look at a man in the eyes for a minute and read his heart, his soul, and guesstimate his IQ with roughly 95% accuracy, and likely the balance in a savings account. A smart man looks at a woman in the eyes and sees blue, green, hazel, grey, brown, or more likely breasts. Women pay attention and notice and, alas, remember forever absolutely everything. The survival of the species depends on it. A man would generally be oblivious if their three-year-old child took a nap on a busy street or played with porcupines, or tried to ride a bear cub who happened to be in the backyard as a pony if there's a game on, and even if there isn't. Women are great at multitasking. Men can usually walk and chew gum at the same time, but that's pretty much the extent of our multitasking ability. Women often expect men to be able to read their minds just because they can so easily read ours. Here's a newsflash, ladies. WE CAN'T. I know you'll find it hard to believe, but it's true. You can torture us about it until the cows come home, but that will change nothing. And they love to act as judge, jury and executioner in determining our guilt for real and imagined transgressions alike due process of law be damned. I've been sentenced to the silent treatment for weeks on end, without a clue as to what horrible transgression I have committed. Asking for an explanation of the charges, let alone trying to mount an actual defense when we might actually have an inkling as to what they may be, merely gets a loud tongue-lashing from the bench with additional time added to the sentence for contempt of court. Kind of like getting a red card in Uh, football—soccer to my American friends who believe football means America's adoption of a more violent form of rugby with body armor and inscrutable rules—for arguing that getting booked by the referee. Unlike judges Wives are likely to literally, and not just metaphorically, throw the book or anything else close at hand at husbands who have the temerity to question the charges against them. Attempting to actually mount a defense is the only remaining crime to which capital punishment is gleefully accepted by the fairer sex, a pun not sexism intended. But none of that applies to my new true love. The most I ever get is a gentle look that could be interpreted as mild disappointment, never anger or disapproval on the rare but not unheard of occasion that I make a complete ass of myself. I've often said that every woman is beautiful in her own way at every age, by which I mean the overwhelming majority of women, with some notable exceptions, if I'm being completely honest. And I know this to be true. I've always been partial to petite women, uh, myself, and have fallen in love with a couple of them in the past. My new love fits that category as well, though she is slight even for my taste. Nevertheless, I find her body nothing short of perfect. hard beautiful curves, yet small in a way that makes me want to protect her. Don't misunderstand me. She is rock-solid, and more than capable of cracking the hardest skull of any would-be assailant. She can more than take care of herself, and would shake her head and regale me with the sound of musical laughter if she suspected I felt a need to protect her. Unlike my wife, however, Any man looking at her, other than through my eyes, would not likely find her to be objectively beautiful. There is little chance of construction workers breaking into the song, Some Guys Have All the Luck, as happened on occasion when my wife and I walked down the street when we were dating and the song was still fairly new. True story. I was so annoyed uh, once that I turned around and replied, Some guys deserve it the cheeky guy singing while longingly staring at my wife, girlfriend at the time, as we approached, walked by the worksite and continued on. But that matters little. Outer beauty fades in time, for even painfully beautiful women, of which I've known a few, but not the inner beauty of my true love that has been hers long before I met her and will be hers long after I turned to dust. Some women suffer the unfortunate effect of PMS, and a few, a tragically terminal variant I have long ago labeled PPMS, Perpetual Premenstrual Syndrome, that appears to afflict them (laughs) from the cradle to the grave. But my love always has the sweetest disposition. She is never on edge, unpleasant, or hormonally unbalanced in any way. She loves to go with the flow. In contrast, going anywhere with my wife has been a real problem for years. I'd be dressed and ready to go out, mind you, in half the time it takes her to get all gussied up, only to have her point at me in disbelief and exclaim, you're going out like that! That always sends a chill down my spine, as I know I will get no help as to what she means if I ask. And I'll be damned if I can ever see anything wrong with what I'm wearing. My outfits are always clean, free of holes be they the fashionable kind some idiots pay extra for, or the free ones we get from moths, energy-efficient washing machines that wash twenty pounds of dirty clothes in two thimblefuls of water with two or three drops of sulfuric acid-based detergent. Although I know asking only makes it worse, invariably I fall into my own personal Kobayashi Maru, the hell of a no-win scenario without James T. Kirk's ability to reprogram the software so that averting disaster is a possible outcome. Actually, for nearly all men, marriage itself is an endless iteration of personal Kobayashi Maru, a kind of hell, except that it's not necessarily eternal, it just feels that way. So stupid me will invariably ask, what's wrong with the way I'm dressed, or what's wrong with what I'm wearing?" Which always leads to one of two possible responses. Number one, a rolling of the eyes, followed by a tight-lipped, silent treatment of indeterminate length. Or two, a response along the lines of, if by this time you're too dense to know the answer, I am not going to tell you. Now please understand, it's not as though I'm wearing coveralls. to the opera, or white shoes after Labor Day, which uh, I understand is no longer punishable by death in my state. That leaves me to wonder what the hell I've done wrong now. Of course, I surreptitiously take a look at what she's wearing while she is uh, tapping her shoes impatiently, arms crossed under her lovely breasts, waiting for me to get a clue. For example, if she's wearing black jeans and a designer black top, and I'm wearing blue jeans and a designer yellow top, I'll wonder, is it the color? I've worn it before without the fashion police raiding my place with a no-knock warrant and guns drawn. I take off the top and inspect it. It's definitely clean and wrinkle-free. No problem there. Is it the color, then? Uh, Or did she want me to wear a casual shirt instead of the Ralph Lauren polo shirt I put on? Is it the fact that it's a polo and she wanted me to wear, what do you call them, a Henley shirt? You know, buttons but no collar. Or perhaps she thought I should wear a regular, more casual t-shirt. Maybe it's just the jeans. Did she want me to match her outfit by wearing black jeans instead of blue? Or was it just blue and yellow combination she objected to can't be the shoes I, I opted for neutral dark brown loafers now if i'd put on the black jeans with the brown shoes maybe that could have set her off or if i'd worn gray socks with the brown shoes maybe but no couldn't be the shoes or the socks could it uh should i try the nike sneakers instead of course, while all this is going on in my head, Mount St. Wife is about to blow her top at any moment due to my inability to read her mind and make amends for whatever unpardonable crime of unwittingly committed. If I'm lucky, I'll guess right at what the problem was. Switch the polo for the Henley, or maybe try the black jeans with the black socks, black penny loafers, and black casual button down shirt in full mourning for the loss of the freedom to dress as I damn well please for the past twenty-nine years. Here endeth the preview. Thank you very, very much for listening. Uh, I had more fun writing this short story than just about anything I've ever written, I think, uh, with the possible exception of my novel. Uh, But unlike the novel, this short story did not cause me to lose sleep over a month. I am glad to say. Uh, Uh, Again, thank you for listening, uh, and uh, please take care of yourself and and your family during these uh, difficult times. Take care.